If you enjoy a quiet afternoon get-together, it's the right now. If you're concerned about not just what goes on your body, but what goes in it, Because when you're in a place that's really happening, anything can happen. So call for the silver bullet, the one that won't slow you down. Before we get started, a quick note. This piece includes discussions of drug use and mental illness and a bunch of curse words. So it's not for kids. Listener discretion is advised. When I was 21, my friend Tony died. It was a tough, sad decline, and his friends, like me, witnessed it up close. Or at least, I thought we were up close, because what's clear to me now is that none of us really understood what Tony was going through. And then, suddenly, he was gone. For me, and some of his other friends, losing Tony at age 21 was a major defining moment in our lives. And all these years later, he's still an important figure in what made us who we are. We all have our own memories of Tony, and what I found working on this was we even remember some of the same things differently. And we all look back at our time with Tony through the lens of our own lives, so we all look back at Tony differently. I guess that's to be expected, but working on this put it into focus for me. This April, it'll have been 25 years since all that happened, and so I sat down with some of Tony's friends to talk about him again and to tell some Tony's stories and to try and understand better what happened back in 1996 and why his Tony loomed large in our lives all these years. I didn't bring tissues because I said... I plan not to cry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I interviewed Taya. Uh-huh. My name's Taya. And I interviewed Rasan. Okay, uh, Rasan Orange. Uh, this is weird, man. Um, sorry. I went into the studio and my friend interviewed me. Mm-hmm. I have such a fucking great memory of, I think it was the first couple months I moved to New York. And I'm scheduled to interview Gold next week. Yeah, tell me this isn't yourself. uncomfortable. <laughs> Just tell me about yourself. Shove the mic in my face. And I was supposed to interview Jonah, and I was in New York with him, and then we ended up just going to dinner and didn't end up recording. But I'm going to interview Jonah. Uh-huh. Me, 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 me. Hi. Hey. Um, hi. Um. <laughs> Like, so much of my memories of him and my life with him are, like, locked away so far, you know? And it's really hard for me to... There's, like, a lot of stuff that has to get walked through in order to be able to, like, sort of walk back into that, like, part of my life in a way that's not 
like held at a distance, you know? What my concern was thinking about doing this shit was that like I wouldn't be connected to it or something. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't like, you know what my my biggest fear of this was like you were going to ask me a question about him. And like I've been so disconnected from it that I'm going to like not remember anything about him or something. You know what I mean? of first meeting Tony or at least your earliest memories of Tom. You can't ask me that one. That was like so long ago. I mean, I was five years old. I know. That's why it's so great. Yeah, it was. that's tough to remember. I mean, he was... We definitely... Um, I was actually thinking about this before I got here because we kind of ran in the same circle before he like got to, you know, Tony status. The first time I remember um, meeting him was at a party. We were still in high school. And he was wearing like a big silver jacket. Silver? Yeah, it was like a silver puffy jacket. And he was like fucked up. He was like kind of slumped on a couch. You know, I was probably 16 or 17 and I was all, that guy's cool. (laughs) (laughs) To me, you know, when I met him... He introduced himself to me as Tone, so that's always who he's been to me. I know, like, to all of you who went to high school with him and knew him before, he was Tony. But to me, he was always Tone, or Tonio, right? Which his mom called him. (laughs) That was the only other person I heard call him a different name. There was Tone over there, you know, with this crowd of girls, like, huddled around him. And, uh, you know, Micah was saying something like, yeah, that's that. That's my buddy Tone. Yeah, he, he's a super popular kind of guy. Like, you know, really good looking. He gets like, you know, he has that leather jacket on, kind of like a motorcycle jacket, something like that. Just like Corey Hames' jacket, actually, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, my instant response was kind of like, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, just as being another guy and, you know, seeing like the, the swarm on him. It was just like a very instant reaction. And uh, it's really funny in retrospect, and like we actually talked about it later in life. It's kind of how when you, a lot of times when you meet people, you have an instant reaction to them, and they end up being your best friend, you know? And that's kind of how I felt about Tone the first day I saw him. First semester of freshman year, we had a ceramics class together. And he kind of came off like he was kind of fucking around, like funny guy a little bit. But then he was super good at ceramics. He made beautiful work. And I remember being really surprised by that because I thought he was just a fuck-off kind of guy. But he made beautiful art. I, Tony, to me, I kind of was like, you know, there's certain like girls you, ha- you come across in your life where you're like, I, I like this chick. I want to know more about her. That totally happened to me with Tony in a way where I was just like, why do I like this guy? Like, I, I want to know him more and I, I want to see wh- where this thing goes. And I just, yeah, he felt like almost like a, uh, a family member, you know, he became, I, I, be, I became 
very close to him in a relatively short amount of time. Cause like we really became tight friends at the very end of high school. You know, I was, I guess, maybe 17 or something like that. So it was a relatively, even though it seemed like forever, it was a, when you think in the grand scheme of things, now that I'm like 40 fucking three, it's only, you know, a handful of years, but a lot was packed into those few years, you know? He was an interesting mix of things in that, you know, he knew all the kids from the private school clique and had come from that private school. But I think he definitely felt apart from that to some degree. I don't think he was seen as apart from that. But he was a smart dude. And, you know, he was a um, he was a mature guy. He was a mature thinker, even though, you know, we're still 14 years old or whatever. But... I think he could see some of the bullshit of, like, the private school clique. And there were a lot of guys from that clique who were pretty straight and were more just obviously from that world. And I think he was a little different from that, saw himself differently. That's what I love most about Tony is he, for some reason, always included me, despite me being who I am. <laughs> but I, uh, I attempted to be in the same circles as him, knowing that he was, you know, like this. And the way that I saw it, he was always kind of like a, I don't mean this to be like that I didn't feel good about myself, but he was like a god. He was like this guy that girls like looked at and were like, I want to be with him. And, you know, I was like this schlubby nerd who, you know, did my thing. And he always like included me no matter what, which I love. That was like the one thing that I always cared for him most deeply about was that he just like, for whatever reason, he kept me around and invited me to things. And I liked it a lot. Um, I, that's I, I love the most. So no, Tony, Tony had a, a way of just, I often don't feel comfortable in my own skin. And Tony made me feel comfortable in my own skin constantly. Like being near him was like, being in a warm blanket. It was like a feeling of like home or family or, you know, he, I, he wouldn't say something like, I love you, but he made you feel loved in a way that was so intimate and so perfect. It was just, it was a really, days with Tony would just meander into just so many different paths and forms, but they were all just wonderful, just wonderful. It was a wonderful exploration of just friendship and like you said, intellectual conversations and ideas and curiosity. Uh, you know, I felt a kinship with him and I feel like we were very similar, I, but I know he, he had his own sort of dimension that was very different, but he made me feel like a part of his world in a way where I never felt so comfortable with somebody. He had such a like sweet kindness, I felt like. He was super funny and sharp, like funny, sharp, smart. I think that he was 
sharp and kind of biting in a way that I really like respected at the time. That really felt like being really smart to me as an 18 year old. He's a, he's, you know, he's a tall, good looking, uh, swarthy Latino gentleman with curly hair and like a beauty mark on his face and like a real kind of glowing presence. Almost looked like he he should be a famous person, even though he wasn't. It was like, you look at me like, is that, that dude is somebody. At the time, like, you know, he was somebody that was like excited and thinking about everything. He thought really fast. There was nothing that like we encountered in the everyday that he wasn't thinking about and analyzing. And uh-huh. to me, that was a way of encountering and thinking about the world that I had never like even really done before, <laughs> you know? So there was like this sort of constant, excited intellectual engagement with the details of the everyday that I don't think I had ever even really paid attention to before. Because if you don't watch your figure, it's the right now. Because when it comes to water, the only place to start is at the top. It's the right now. Because when the party's going full steam, you don't want to fill up. So reach for the beer that won't slow you down. The Silver Bullet. Under siege. The Los Angeles Times calls it die hard on a battleship. Uh, some special forces guy or something. I'm just a cook. Steven Seagal, under siege, now on video cassette. And for more non-stop action, Passenger 57 is spectacular. Exciting. Snipes is sensational. You ever play roulette? On occasion. Always bet on black. Wesley Snipes, Passenger 57. Look for it on video cassette. They thought gang violence only happened in South Central L.A. Now it's coming to Beverly Hills. An all-new 90210 Wednesday. Yeah, so Tony was definitely like one of the more like alluring elements. He felt like the gang leader or something in a way. Because first of all, he was like a, a bigger dude. So he's a little bit like imposing and you're kind of like, oh, this guy's like the godfather, you know? <laughs> this guy, everyone has to answer to him and he kind of runs this thing. Which is true in some ways, but also totally not true in every other way. I think Tony just did have an inherent magnetism that probably everyone responded to in some way. And so, and I bet he was also like a tall kid earlier than a lot of the kids in town. So everyone just like, I'm with this dude. I will say this, my one, it reminds me, my one memory, we played a lot of Nintendo. So now you've triggered this memory, I'll tell you. He was really good. We played um, uh, a baseball game on Nintendo, the early ones, and you could pitch and he would always choose the 86 Mets. And he would pitch as Dwight Gooden and his pitches would like make this like, they'd be like Bugs Bunny pitches that would come in. RBI Baseball, that was the name of the game. Um, he was really good at that. And then also I remember he had a TV in his room, even from a very young age, like when he was like eight or nine. 
So he always was able to, like, if I wanted to go watch TV, I'd go to Tony's house. I'd say uh, one of those key things that we just touched on is, I mean, not everyone gets to live like that. I mean, you know, really, it's not that much of a joke. You really kind of live the living Luke Perry lifestyle that, that you saw in 90210. He had crazy like house pretty much to himself and he always had beers in the fridge and not that much food you know no one's really cooking for him so it was you know burrito time for dinner you know i mean there was a total fascination with tv but not just being a drone but you know the good tv shows and the kind of humor that comes along with kind of like living in that tv world a little bit I'd say he kind of, his influences and lifestyle were kind of drawn in this like semi, I can live that fantasy a little bit. And, um, and there's a few stories to support that. I just thought he was like sort of spectacular. Like he was so good looking and so funny and good, you know, but he was tragic. He always felt tragic even before things got really dark. There was such a like sad soft center to him, I felt like. And, you know, I never talked to him about it once. You know, I met him when we were 14. He died when we were 21. And we were definitely super close in those years and talked about a lot over those years and had, you know, deep conversations for teenagers and went through a lot together but I never once asked him about his dad or ever talked to him about his dad. So around then when he had no, after his dad died, he had no other place to go. So his mom was kind of like, here's a TV. You're home alone a lot. You're a latchkey kid. And there was that piece of it for sure. did was either laugh our ass off like laugh to the point of just hysteric like where you can't even where you're going like (laughs) you know like that kind where like no sound is coming out or we would have like deep conversations about like the kind of shit that you would admit only to very few fucking people you know what i mean like there was a certain there was a certain like uh like it, there's very few people in my life that I've been like like that around like you know one is maybe my brother and just certain friends you've had in your life where like he would have been like the kid that where I'm 12 years old like I admit to the kid that I jerk off you know what I mean where like nobody admits to that shit and I'd be like yo on the real <laughs> and then he's also really funny like really fucking smart and funny. And I don't know, it also felt like it's not like a generic kind of funny. It's a very specific and unique kind of funny. And it was like my kind of funny. It felt like a sense of humor that I was like, a lot of these people, I don't think are fully getting this right now, but I love this guy. Like he is fucking subversive and funny and like kind of cutting, but also generous in his humor. And 
loves to just like riff on ideas. And I mean, throughout the years, that was something where you would just like riff with him about like, oh, what if it's this day? Oh, and it's that. And no, you know what? Then it's this. Oh, you know what? And then at the end, we're like at the at the edge of the cliff and we're all fucking doing the thing. And you're like, what? wait, what? I love this idea. And we just build these tales, you know, like sometimes just like sitting in a car in the Presidio getting high and talking about like, what would the movie of our imaginations be right now? And yeah, this is the way I want to be talking to people for the rest of my life. I mean, in my memory, he just seems like totally unique, but maybe that's because he's like frozen, you know? And at the time I felt like all of you guys were really pretty special people. Like I felt like, there was this crew of young men, you, Tone, Rasan, Jonah, and you were all like really like, what's the word when you shine? You know, you all sort of were energetic and talented and interesting and smart. Tone was kind of like my favorite, but I felt like all of you guys were really like special. He made me feel good about myself. And when I felt like shit and felt weird, he made me feel like I, like that shit was normal. And was, you know, I've definitely dealt with depression and anxiety in my life. And he was one of the first people, I guess, kind of like that thing I was talking about, masturbation or whatever, like how that, that being like a, a dirty secret. It was like he was one of the first people that I could kind of come out about being depressed or being um, scared, you know, about my own mind or whatever, you know, like those kind of things really bond you to somebody, you know, like when somebody kind of feels you, feels what you're talking about, you know, like what you're going through and they get it and they don't judge you for it, you know, where you could just be yourself, you know? There was this whole thing that I have in retrospect thought about, which was kind of interesting to me, which, which was, kind of revolve around water and in uh in the time frame that he had come back to san francisco and we were spending a lot of time together actually he tay and i were spending quite a lot of time together and you know he's in kind of an interesting i wouldn't say manic depressant state but (laughs) at that time um you know we had a lot of times where he would be really up and then really down and and um you know we we had these talks about like facing Ocean Beach, like at night in in the car, and uh, he had asked me to take him to Seven Eleven so he can get a Slurpee with put a beer in it, <laughs> which I, which I'll never quite understand. But but anyhow, and he went into this whole thing about like about how he hated the water, that he like he was totally in fear of water, and that um, he felt like it takes the life out of you. And we got into this whole talk about you know, basically like how it sucks energy away. And he just stood by that sensibility. And so in retrospect, obviously, that's a really key memory. He didn't tell me like a lot of the details of what the day-to-day kind of what he went through, but he talked about his dad a lot. And even, you know, when he was like really depressed or manic, or, you know, I don't even know. Like, I remember he got diagnosed by some psychiatrist at some point as being bipolar, and I don't know, you know, how much of that was, like, 
I don't know if he was just really depressed and like self-medicating or what, but he would want to be like his dad. Like he spent a lot of time trying to understand his father. And he like, even in his illness, he would talk a lot about what his dad was like when he was sick. And I think in some ways was like constantly living the tragedy of that. Coleman the steel sign. Let Gibson swing for the fences. It's going, going, go! RBI Baseball, the one the pros pitch. It's the summer before their senior year. The summer of 92 on 90210. All new episodes on an all new night beginning Wednesday, July 15th. <laughs> TF3. TF3. It was a fantastic three. It was based on the Fantastic Four, the comic book. And it came from high school era when me and Jonah and Tony would hang out. And you know, when you're that age, you can just hang out for hours and spend the night together and hang out the next day and go to school together. (laughs) We were the Fantastic Three. And I was Mr. Fantastic. Tony was the thing. And Jonah was the human torch. Jesus Christ, I've got this tattooed on my arm. And so after Tony died, Jonah and me and Gold and Mike all went and got tattoos a couple months after he died. And Jonah and I both got TF3 tattooed in the same place on our left bicep. First of all, in the in the city at that time, there was a lot of sort of like, I, I think it came sort of out of like, graffiti culture a little bit. There was sort of like crews and things like that. And uh, ours was like, we had one for school, basically, which was TF3. Obviously, TF3 was the Fantastic Three. And it was based on the comic book, The Fantastic Four. And we would always, we would assign ourselves the role. Jake was Mr. Fantastic. I was the Human Torch. And of course, Tony was the thing. And so... (laughs) I and then we'd sometimes have like a uh, sort of auxiliary member, which was uh, at first, I think it was Corey Campodonico. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then most- I was going to say the first, I thought the first auxiliary member was Sanjay. No, no. She was like the fifth auxiliary member. No, she was, she was the third auxiliary member. Mike Long was the next auxiliary member. And then I don't remember if Gold was, uh, he wasn't really a TF3 type of, uh, of person. <laughs> Yeah, it's up to you. Know, he's a great guy. So he went to UCLA for a year. I actually went down with him to help him move in the first weekend. And he had an apartment in Westwood, I want to say. 
remember we got super high and when we were leaving the apartment we were going to go do something i forget what and he pulls out of his parking place and turns the wheel super fast and hits the car next to him he's like oh mac (laughs) and then we're just so high and we're like what do we do he's like fuck i don't know i just mac that car dave (laughs) like yeah you totally mac it he's like oh man so I'll just deal with this later. And he just drove off. Well, it was his neighbor. I mean, it was like he wasn't going to get away with it. So, You know what? Tony, I think, went to UCLA right after high school and like went, you know, for like a semester or something, kind of half-assed it and dropped out. I think that's what happened. And then he ended up just moving to New York, not for school at all. So it ended up being the same time that I moved to New York to go to NYU. As a middle-aged person, like understanding this young man, but my belief, I think, is still that he was an exceptionally bright and talented and funny and, you know, uniquely sad. You know, now I have... I'm a mental health professional. So now I have all this understanding about trauma and loss that like forms my understanding of him and where he was at at that time. Oh, yeah. Especially at like that fucking late teens, early 20s, like where you all you're trying to do is be cool and shit. And then like you you realize you could just tell someone, hey, look, man, I'm I'm uncool, you know, (laughs) you know, and like but our public face people probably would look at the two of us hanging out and not think that we have all these insecurities and don't know what the fuck we're doing and have depression or anxiety or, you know, what have you, you know? But the reality of the situation was that, you know, those were the you know, some of the things that we would, you know, commiserate on, bond about, laugh about, kind of gallows humor about like, goddamn, you know, like, <laughs> you know, being able to laugh at the most fucked up, feelings and, you know, uh, situations and whatnot, you know. But I think there was maybe a a part of us that maybe felt very different from our own families. And I think that might be the thing was that we found more of a sort of human understanding and connection with each other than we had with our own family spheres, even though our family spheres were very different. You know, his mom was a psychologist but and she was never around like she would just appear occasionally and then his sister was also would appear occasionally and she was very intimidating they were usually mad at each other immediately and uh she would kind of come through like a storm and he'd be like oh, don't worry about her da 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 and then his father had passed away and i think he had an incredibly complex relationship with his father his father had come out of the closet while married to his mother and contracted AIDS and passed away. And I think he had a very complex relationship with that, all of that. So I think he was searching to find out who he was on his own. I guess we all are at that age, certainly. But it wasn't because of our like familial understanding. I think it was because of maybe our alienation in our environments that we sort of found each other and understood each other and uh, responded to each other. And I think we both were eagerly forging this like almost separate family experience that we shared and that you were a part of too. That was, that was really what TF3 was in a, in a way. It was like this group of friends. I, I mean, I, I, at that time and still in my head, I 
was like, these will be friends of mine for the rest of my life. And, it, you know, I, in, in middle school and in high school, I had a lot of friends, but I didn't really feel that kind of closeness. I maybe like, you know, eight people in my entire life, including like to this day. And you guys were two of those at a really, I mean, how fortunate at such a young age where I was like, this is what friendship actually is like. Yeah, he went to UCLA for a year, and then I want to say he went to New York right after that. I think that's right. Didn't do well at UCLA. I'm not like, I think academically he did fine. He just didn't find like a group of friends or have any like connection to it in any way. And missed, I'm sure he missed you and Jonah and, you know, like Rosan and and had like ideas of going to New York and doing something different. UCLA wasn't his thing. And then he he moved to New York that summer that like soon thereafter. I want, did you roll in the um, the new school for media or something like that? Nope. He ended up going. I don't think this was immediately, although I could be wrong. He took classes at SVA or FIT or something. He was a great artist, and he did some classes somewhere pursuing some art in New York, and I don't remember exactly what. But I feel as though first he just moved out to New York and didn't didn't do shit. And then maybe tried this school a little bit later. Jonah or someone would remember those details better. And around that time frame, so that's 93, um, I remembered uh, seeing a lot of you guys go off to NYU and I remember visiting Jonah in Thanksgiving of 93 and, you know, talking to him, seeing how everyone was doing. I never saw Tone over there, but I had a memory of him shortly after basically following everybody out to New York, even though he wasn't in school. He was like de facto, like NYU buddy. I think it was right before some break. Maybe it was Thanksgiving break my sophomore year, my second year in college. And I remember he wrote his phone number on this calendar that I had on the wall. We just talked for a little while. I was like super, very much interested in him. And I went home and I called him as soon as I got back. And we started hanging out all the time basically from the day that I got back, but like definitely very much not dating. Tony moved out to New York and got some apartment in Midtown, somewhere that just seemed totally alien to me. When I just moved to New York and I only knew downtown and a little bit of Brooklyn, he moved to like, it was like Times Square District. It was like Midtown West or something, like 55th Street or somewhere. There's like, what the, where did you come up with this weird apartment? And he went and just freaking partied and was just going out all the time, every night, getting with tons of women and just, you know, absorbing New York. I don't think I was really, like, cool enough for him to date. I think... He 
was into me from the beginning and I was definitely into him, but you know, he, all you guys really were like a lot more cosmopolitan than I was, <laughs> you know, like you guys all like grew up in San Francisco and were like deeply into the cutting edge of pop culture. And I wasn't really necessarily the right person for him to date in his own mind at that time. <laughs> Yeah, we hung out all the time, but like he would go out with other girls sometimes, but he would always tell me he was going out with his friend Frank. I don't know if you remember this guy, Frank. So he wouldn't like tell me that he was dating other women. I don't know. That was it. It was like for the first few months that I knew him, I think we hung out like almost every day, you know, just talking, whatever, walking around the city, watching TV, like I think really instantly, deeply connected and excited by each other. If I'm going to play armchair psychologist, I think that, you know, his father passed away and I forgot what age he was when his dad passed away, but that seemed to be like something. And I can only imagine because of how close I am with my pops and how much I look up to him and whatnot. I can only imagine what kind of effect that would have on my heart and opening myself. You know, I, I can, I could just imagine how, how that might close me off, you know? I mean, I, I remember, like, I, I used to, like, when we lived in Midtown, I, like, moved into his apartment in Midtown at one point, and I would, like, run home from the train to see him. Like, we would race to see each other all the time to feel that, like, total exhilaration of being, you know, more than yourself. My memory of that relationship is, is that feeling. And then I think the worst thing that could have happened to him was from his father dying, he left him in his will. He like left Tony some money. And to this day, I have no fucking clue how much money that was. But Tony had like a bank account with money in it. And all the rest of us either were in school or had jobs. Myself, I had shitty ass jobs and I had no fucking money to spend on shit, you know? And I lived in a place where, you know, the rent was cheap and I, you know, like I was just, you know, those were like the ramen noodles and the drinking the country club 40s. You know, it was all frugal for me. You know, I didn't have money for shit, but he always kind of had some money and it was always because of that, whatever his pops left him. I always find that like, and I learned this later in life when I had some success as an actor to the point where I didn't have to have a nine to five and I like was between acting gigs. It's like that limbo, that twilight zone, you know, you don't know what fucking day of the month it is and you don't might not even know what month it is. And you get up at whatever time in the days kind of blend in. And it's like I feel like he got into that kind of early 20s depression and didn't have to have a schedule. I felt like he had this chip on his shoulder that was like, hey, I've been through a lot of shit. I've uh, had a lot of pain. I've suffered. Now I deserve this. I deserve to have this money and to relax or to do what the fuck I want with it. So I feel like there was like this entitlement that he had where he was like, he thought, you know, why shouldn't I at least have this um, if I can't have my pops or whatever it is. So he went to Spain for a month. And when he came back, he came to my dorm room and knocked on the door and, 
you know, I don't remember what his words were anymore at this time, but basically was like, I've been gone. I've been thinking about this relationship. I'm like, want to be together. I'm like really into you. And like, that was it. We got together in that instant. Like we started like making out at the door of my dorm room. And like, I think somehow made our way to his apartment. And like, I don't think ever spent a night apart after that. I think, uh, you know, we, I, th- I think, uh, well, I think like cocaine is probably what, where it all went wrong. You know, I think um, we all fucked around and partied a lot and did stuff always. You know, that was not like a, a, an unusual thing. And I think we all messed around with a little yayo here and there as well. But after Tony and Brenda got into a, a relationship, they started doing a lot more cocaine together. Like, not just socially. I remember, like, sort of just starting to notice that at first. And it was, like, one of those, I guess, things where you sort of know it's not not a good thing. But, you know, being somebody who would occasionally partake as well, it felt kind of hypocritical to, like, be too verbal about concerns in a way. Did you have concerns? Definitely. I mean, I remember one day he was over at my house and he was like talking about how he needed to get more cocaine. And then he was using hot sauce to clear his nasal passages out. And I was just like, (laughs) this this is fucked up. And this was when Brenda's friend from Jersey, who's somehow involved with garbage collection, like that's like the most mafia shit ever. He was in the picture and I think his name was Michael. And I know that he was um, a very artistic dude. You know, he was a talented artist. Uh, when we're talking about like actual art, like uh, drawing and painting and shit. But it was like, he wasn't doing enough of that. It wasn't like, you know, Jackson Pollock where he's sitting there all day long, like making paintings and shit. You know, it was like he was sitting around being depressed or, you know, uh, and unfortunately kind of getting involved in the heavier drugs, which was, you know, and I don't know who really introduced him to the shit because to be honest, the first times I ever did coke myself was in a group of friends with him. I think we were at like this club called Club USA, I want to say. And it was the first time I ever did coke was in the bathroom at that place. And I think well, I don't want to name any names, but it was there was a there was it, it was in a group with him. 
The things that have stuck with me the most over these decades have been the like really dark times. Like I have very clear memories of a New Year's Eve. You were there in like a hotel on Van Ness. Maybe he had been hospitalized and then left the hospital. And so we were all sort of like on edge watching him, trying to make it fun because it was like New Year's Eve, but also really feeling like he couldn't party. We needed, you know, when we were kids, like we were not equipped to be doing that kind of like work. When he had moved back from New York and he was in this kind of manic depressant state to the extent that there would be times where he could be at IHOP with me or was at Mel's Diner and uh, yelling at the waitress in a really rude way, like very loud aggressive kind of way about his pancakes being wrong or something like, you know, and then he would just turn and be like, all right, I'm gonna go to sleep. Tell me when they get here. Yeah. I'm going to school and not like I was Mr. Hardcore student, but I was involved and I was there and I certainly wasn't going hard going out all night. And, you know, we were all still close friends, Jonah and Tony and me, but more and more, he was getting wasted with harder drugs and doing more coke, and that wasn't really my thing. And it was that feeling of, you know, I was uncomfortable with it because I didn't really know it. I wasn't part of that world. I wasn't going out to do that stuff. But even when it was hanging out back at his house and it was a smaller crew, I had a certain kind of discomfort with the drugs. And, you know, I don't want to support you guys doing this shit that I know is serious. And so I'm going to start separating myself from that. At the beginning, it was like I would just not show up as much. But then I remember, you know, later on as it was getting really serious, having talks even with Jonah, it feels a little presumptuous of me. But I guess it was the right thing of saying, like, don't do coke with him. Don't participate in this because you know you're doing it just for fun and having a fun friday night he's farther gone and by you participating a little you're kind of you know supporting something that's more dangerous for him it's so hard to be unmoored you know i think that when he got to new york he was like deeply unmoored like he you all had a life together when you were in high school And he came to New York to continue that life, but he didn't have the elements of life that we all had, right? Like school is a thing that gives you purpose. Whether you care about that purpose or not, it still demands that you be somewhere every day. It demands that you meet minimal requirements. It tells you who you are in the world. And New York is a really overwhelming place. You know, he had money. He had no responsibilities and you know in your early 20s you're figuring out who you are and you're trying to Uh understand who you are through everything that's happened to you already and he like carried an experience that nobody else did or could relate to or could understand Uh and he continued to have that to be sort of separate and I don't think that like doing drugs is what is some like bad decision that therefore had negative outcomes. You know, I think that he was trying to numb himself from the really, I think, overwhelming 
truths of his life that were really hard to encounter and figure out, you know, and that are all that much more dramatic when you're in your early 20s. That was when I first actually sort of felt a little bit estranged from Tony's life was when that world kind of began. And so I think it was like sometimes the cocaine was a way just to still be in Tony's life. And so, okay, you know, fuck it. That's uh, that's worth it. At a certain point, he kind of was distancing himself. I don't know if it was a conscious choice, but you just saw him hanging out less and less with that core group of friends from San Francisco. And it became like he was hanging out more with a different group of friends that he could do drugs with. And more and more it would be like, who's this dude that you're hanging out? Like, who the fuck is this cat? Like somebody that I didn't really vibe with. And I'd be like, who the fuck is that guy? You know, and it started to get real sad. And you could just see him more and more being depressed, sleeping the days away, you know, saying he, he felt like shit. It just was bad, you know, it was just... It seemed like an inevitability, like that he was going to push it to an upper limit and also kind of a belief system that was all the greatest writers that he admired probably went down this heroin path and went to go deep and really get the good stuff so he could do the same thing and bring it back and put it into that screenplay or bring it back into his reality so that he has that depth like they have. And of course, you know, I felt like he's a complex guy. Like, and I think that as you get older, I think right around that time frame, I think guys really come to a point where they get in a little conflict of like, wow, I really have to show up and become a man. And what am I going to do with everything with my life? And, you know, especially when you're handed stuff, like I better come up with something. I'm a smart guy. Right. You know, he had this like weird story, this like unusual and sad and weird story. And I don't think that he had made sense of it. I think that he was both metabolizing it, but also like not processing it. And then I think maybe he was like really very bipolar I think that maybe what I remember as the fun times was the mania. There's a lot of overlap between mental illness and drug addiction. So I don't know which one is which. I don't know where one ends and the other one begins. But I think that the combination of like unresolved pain from his life and maybe like a real chemical imbalance and just being on a lot of drugs, like some combination of those things, like got him. He couldn't get ahead of those things.
So that's the end of part one. I split this up into two parts so you can take a break before listening to the whole thing. I want to thank my friends for talking like this so candidly and letting me use their thoughts and their voices. As you can imagine, it wasn't always easy to dig into this stuff. So thank you, Brenda Belletti, Rasan Orange, David Goldberg, Taya Anderson, Brent Kambayashi, and Jonah Moran. Thanks also to Eric Friedenberg for his expert editorial advice and Luce Fleming for interviewing me and his additional engineering and technical guidance. The piano music you hear throughout was composed and performed by Tyler Cash, except the one piece you're hearing under my voice right now. That's by Neil Young. I include it because Jonah and I listened to the original a lot in 1996. So part two of this piece is available right now in the same place you grabbed part one. Thanks for listening.